Hello again, this is Jim Bartlett. Welcome back to my podcast, which is a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. My favorite month of the year is October. The change of season from fruitfulness to harvest, from long days to short, from light to darkness, is our fate as creatures on this planet compressed into a few weeks. In spring we grow, in summer we prosper and we frolic in the sun. In the fall we start to feel our age and we know where we're going after that. But even while that inexorable process is taking us, we get to experience a few moments of indescribable beauty before we go. October has been a month in which I've experienced some of the highest highs and lowest lows as a creature on this planet. I fell both in love and out of it, performed deeds both great and terrible, acted both brave and cowardly. So beyond the sunlight and the falling leaves and the first fire in the fireplace and pulling up an extra blanket in the night, October is full of people and places and times to remember. Memories enough to make me believe that the man I have become, whoever and whatever he is, was made in October and made by October. Made for October, too. This episode is called Late for Your Life. One of the most memorable days of my brief tenure as a social studies teacher started when one of my American history sophomores raised a hand in the middle of a lesson on the populist movement and asked, Why do we have to learn this? Well, let me slip back into teacher mode for a minute. Populism has gotten a bad name in 21st century America. It's considered a destructive form of class warfare whipped up by fiery rhetoric from political demagogues. 19th century populism was a form of class warfare, a movement of people against the powerful, and it was driven by fiery rhetoric. But the original populist movement is a fabulous American story in which farmers in the Midwest and Great Plains joined together to fight the railroads and giant grain-buying conglomerates that were exploiting them economically. They agitated for silver-backed currency in addition to gold, which would have increased the money supply and eased the never-ending hard times that plagued rural communities. For a brief period, from the late 1870s to the early 1890s, it looked like the populists were starting to make progress. They won some state elections, and economic conditions improved in some places. But they ultimately failed to make a long-term impact. This was partly because the plutocrats convinced the politicians in their pockets to screw the populists by any means necessary. And it was partly because when the time came for the downtrodden in different parts of the country to unite across the rural and urban, north and south, and black and white divides, they couldn't do it. Old patterns, especially Civil War loyalties and straight-up racism, made it impossible. Had they done it, however, modern America might look very different. But while it lasted, the populist movement was a heroic tale in which plucky underdogs got in their licks on the big bad bullies, and it featured some very colorful characters. The orator Mary Elizabeth Lease, who suggested that farmers needed to raise less corn and more hell. Kansas Congressman Sockless Jerry Simpson, who won his nickname when he contrasted himself with his wealthy opponent for Congress by calling the man a prince in silk stockings. And William Jennings Bryan, the Nebraska congressman and future three-time Democratic presidential nominee, who said that the working man would not permit himself to be crucified on a cross of gold. In the right hands, the populist movement would make a hell of a movie. But my students, who went to plucky underdog movies every damn weekend, couldn't have cared less. Why do we have to learn this, they asked. Because I believed in the concept of the teachable moment, and because I had some wiggle room in the syllabus for the rest of the semester, I decided to toss the lesson plan for the day and turn the question around. Why do you think we have to learn this? We ended up talking about whether human choices affect the course of history. Several of my students were convinced they do not. The students believed that their choices had some impact on their lives, but they didn't believe the same thing about choices made by others. Everyone else's actions were fixed and immutable. Here's an example. At one point, I asked what would have happened if John Wilkes Booth had decided not to shoot Abraham Lincoln. 
In the front row, a hand flew up instantaneously. If Booth hadn't done it, somebody else would have, because Lincoln had to die. To them, history is a river and humanity is in a boat, but there's no pilot. The boat just floats along with the current and takes us wherever it's going to go. I forgave my students their perspective, though. Not until you're older do you understand the potential impact of choices, even little ones. It doesn't take a great deal of imaginative effort to envision a whole range of other lives you might have led. What if you hadn't taken a particular job or gotten involved with a particular person? What if you did something you didn't do or left something else undone? What if you'd steered the boat on a slightly different heading? This isn't making a map of the roads not taken. A map shows where you'll end up, but with visions like this, how can you tell? Nevertheless, conjuring with what might have been, dreaming about being someone else somewhere else, is a pastime we can't resist. But if you want to be happy in this life, especially when you arrive in your geezerhood, it helps to get comfortable riding the boat you're in. And it's not automatically a bad thing to simply float along for a while. If you work too hard at steering the boat, you're going to miss the scenery. goes on and on and on. 
It's a sunny Sunday morning in October, and the west side is bustling. Lots of traffic on the streets, lots of pedestrians on the sidewalks. It seems like everybody's in a hurry, and maybe they are. We cannot expect many more days like this one before they grow cold and gray, so we rush to make the most of them. There's probably music on in many of the cars, and many of the pedestrians are plugged into earbuds. We can live surrounded by music all day every day if we want to, and often it becomes background noise like the rumble of the traffic. From time to time, however, a song elbows its way to the foreground. It might be something new or something we've overlooked, and it might be an old song we've heard 10,000 times before. Why does that happen? How do songs that are as familiar as the weather suddenly grab our attention and make us listen as if we were hearing them for the first time? Now and then they do, and you know they do, because the same thing happens to you. And on this particular day, one of the old and familiar songs of my life is shining to rival the sun. I'm not going to tell you the name of the song because you probably wouldn't know it, It's one of those songs that builds tension and then releases it in an exquisite rush, and I am eagerly anticipating that moment. But when it comes upon me, the rush I feel is not what I'm expecting. At that moment of release, my eyes start welling up. There I am at a busy stoplight on a Sunday morning waiting for the light to change, and I want to cry. I'm not going to tell you the name of the song because what does it to me wouldn't do it to you. As the song fades and I blink back the tears, I know what just happened. We have moments in which we see our lives whole. 
the dreams we had and the ways they came true or didn't, the ways in which we have succeeded and in which we have failed, what we have done and what we have left undone. We see the faces and hear the voices of those we love and those we have lost. Everything that was, everything that is, and maybe everything that is going to be rushes in on us all at once. Sometimes a song makes it happen. And when it does, the only appropriate response is tears for the good fortune we've enjoyed, for the losses we've endured, and perhaps for both equally. But I'm not going to tell you the name of the song because you have your own. Now it's a weekday noontime in October, and I'm sitting in my favorite bagel shop with the laptop open. The piped-in music is self-consciously acoustic, featuring lots of faceless singer-songwriter pop, although at one point Tom Waits comes on. Outside, traffic hustles by on University Avenue, and leaves fall from the half-bare trees on Farley Street. People come and go, many toting laptops like me. Conversations bubble and wane around me. A few kids come down from the nearby high school for lunch, but it's far enough that they can't stay long. I am under no such restriction, and I linger a while. Now I'm driving home, taking a back way through a heavily wooded neighborhood. If I met an oncoming car on this narrow street, one of us would have to pull over to let the other one pass. Golden sunlight sifts through the trees. I'm tempted to park and watch it for a while. If I ever find a portal in time back to the sacred days I treasure, it's going to be lighted just this way. Soon I turn onto a busier street, where I pass a school, a building that puts me in mind of Lincoln School, the long-gone building I attended when I was little. Classroom windows are adorned with paper jack-o'-lanterns, and kids are on the playground outside. As the breeze kicks up and the leaves swirl around, I wish for a moment that I could be one of those kids, just for the 15 minutes of afternoon recess, just to see how today feels to them right now. Empathy only goes so far. We can never know exactly how the lives of others feel to them, We can't tell what some random sixth grader is really experiencing on the playground. We can't hear the songs that are playing in the head of a high school kid with a backpack and a bagel. And we can't know whether something happened to them on this day or in this month that they will carry with them years from now, or whether the day or the month or the year will disappear down the river of forgotten time like most days, months, and years do. Live through enough Octobers and you'll find yourself wanting to say to those kids, remember this, hold on to it. You are going to miss those days of potential and possibility, especially the ones lighted like this day is, by autumn's sun, and with leaves that twinkle like fat stars as they fall through it. You are especially going to miss not having to worry about the things you don't have to worry about. It may seem to you like nothing is happening, but more is happening than you can possibly understand right now. But while you're busy remembering, be quick to forget, too. Things that seem important now, obsessions and slights and pain, won't matter at all later and they won't matter sooner than you think. Live through enough Octobers and you'll discover something else. There are moments, not just from childhood, but from all the days and years through which you will pass, that will matter more as the years go by. You'll be surprised by, and you will cherish what remains, despite the passing of days and years. And on certain slow, sunny October afternoons, you'll get lost in all of it.
Songs featured in this podcast were Colors by Grace Potter and the Nocturnals and Late for Your Life by Mary Chapin Carpenter. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find by putting that phrase into your favorite search engine. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider listening to other episodes of it. You can find past episodes at my website. They're also available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about new episodes. And if you're listening on a platform where you can give this podcast a like or a positive review, I hope you will do so. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.